Welcome to episode 13 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to mention that we want you. We want you to be involved with the 3C Digital Media Network as a content creator. If you have a course in mind or a webinar, or if you'd like to start your own podcast, we would like to work with you. So go over to the 3CDigitalMediaNetwork.com website and sign up to be a content creator today. And now, back to the interview. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jenna Voss. Jenna is an associate dean and assistant professor at Fontbonne University. She received her undergraduate degree in deaf education and her master's degree in early intervention in deaf education from Fontbonne University. As a National Leadership Consortium and Sensory Disabilities Fellow, she completed her PhD in speech and hearing sciences in the program in audiology and communication sciences at George Washington University in St. Louis. She holds teaching certification in the state of Missouri in the areas of deaf education and early childhood special education. Her background as a teacher of the deaf and early intervention provider has sparked diverse interests in topics including the health disparity among children and families experiencing adversity, primary prevention of abuse and neglect for children with disabilities, provider use of strategies and techniques implemented in a family-centered practice, and the application of research in cognitive psychology to the field of deaf education to improve the efficiency of learning and instruction of pre-service professionals. Dr. Voss is interested in so many things, and we have a lot to talk about. Here's the interview. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jenna Voss. Hi. So, so glad that you're here. Would you start by giving us a little bit of a little bit of information about your background? Sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, like you said, I'm Jenna, and I'm a teacher of the deaf by training. I um, worked in a preschool classroom for kids who are deaf and hard of hearing, learning, listening, and spoken language at a private option school first, um, first out of grad school. That was the start of my career, and um, then I slowly worked my way back to. Um, doing early intervention in deaf education and supporting caregivers to support their child's um, listening and spoken language development. And so I've worked at um, the Omaha Hearing School under the direction of one of my very uh, favorite mentors, Karen Rossi. Mm -hmm. And that was where I 
got my sea legs, I guess, in the preschool classroom. Um, and then she also uh, really mentored me up for the family coaching part that has become a real passion. And then I um, worked at Central Institute for the Deaf in St. Louis uh, in the Birth to Three program. And that's where I started doing home visits in the natural environment, really full time um, and supporting families that way. I, I guess I could have said that my... Um, pre-service preparation was from Fontbonne University. So I did undergrad in deaf ed where I was certified as a teacher of the deaf. And then I completed a master's program there um, that Susan Lenahan, who's the, um, my first and forever mentor, uh, started that program uh, many years ago, really um, after the Walsh Act and in response to needing practitioners prepared to serve families through early intervention. So my master's degree is focused on early intervention and deaf education. That's great. So your strong foundation started at Fontbonne. Yes. And here I am again at Fontbonne. So um, I, I think to follow, um, since I've been I'm not working in direct service provision anymore. I um, went back and did my PhD in speech and hearing science at Washington University. I was part of a fellowship program that some in the field are aware of called the National Leadership Consortium in Sensory Disabilities. So I um, finished my doc work and then um, began my full-time position at Fompan where I was a university faculty and then um, We've had some leadership transition, and so I became the director of those deaf education programs. And then just hot off the press, like uh, last month, <laughs> I've shifted a little bit further. And so now I'm working as an associate dean um, in our College of Education and Allied Health Professions, trying to do some good interprofessional work between the deaf ed and speech language pathology programs and our education and special ed programs. And then I also continue to oversee the graduate deaf ed program. Wow, that's that's a very full plate as a it is. <laughs> faculty member as an administrator. That's, uh, that's yeah, I get to sort of dance both sides. So I didn't um, cross over fully to the dark side of administration. I hear like the faculty lore about like who becomes administrator. So I'm holding tight to the teaching and program side because that's where my heart is. But sure. Well, you have to tell me at some point whether it's if the analogy of herding cats as an administrator. <laughs> is really true. Um, what I have seen over the years uh, as uh, being in academia is, is, you know, you have a lot of uh, people with advanced degrees, which means they have uh, usually very high opinions. Yes. <laughs> Lots of things. Yes. So if you can make things happen, I uh, fully support you. <laughs> well, I feel like it's... Um you know, I have a lot of opinions also <laughs> that go along with, I think I had them before I had any degrees or any advanced degrees, if you ask my family, but um, I feel like this is one of those times where you can have the opinions and then you have to lean into the work. And I think this was the next step to say like, okay, how can I um, help influence systems change at, at this way? But I also don't want to lose track of what it feels like to do the work. So I, I, I'm hopeful this is the right balance, but time will tell, I think. Oh, I, I, in all seriousness, applaud you for doing it because being in administration, it's it's often not rewarded in a way or or appreciated by faculty, um, sure, by others because you do end up sort of um, find your, yourself sometimes in the middle of 
uh, very good people trying to do the right things, but having very different perspectives. Of how, yes, for sure. Uh, you kind of get caught from, you know, get you get it from all sides, basically. Heard, heard. <laughs> With all that, and that is exciting. And so being back at Fontbon, what what do you think is the difference now with students or are there any differences among the students now that you are seeing versus when you were there? Wow, that's an interesting question. I still feel like um like I can't possibly be that old and I can't possibly be that different from when I was student there, but that's uh, quickly, that myth is evaporating right before my eyes. I um, last fall had a privilege of teaching a freshman, first year, first year student um, course that Fompon has called the Mission Corps. It's our um, INT 105, and we help students understand Catholic social teaching and the common good. And that was a real eye-opener to see like how not so young I am these days with a um, straight out of high school kind of um, population. But it also reminds me how much isn't really different, right? Um, right. I, I think that there, um, I don't know that I can sum it up to say, like, what are the differences between students now? I think in the narrow field of deaf ed or a little bit broader of communication disorders, um, which at Fompon includes speech path. We have a speech path in a deaf ed program. Uh, we still see some students who straight out of high school know that this is the discipline and the field um, in which they want to work. And they ha often come with like a deep, meaningful relationship with the work, right? So either a family member who was served by these kinds of professionals or um, they went to a school where they might have seen learners or had friends who were receiving services from teachers of the deaf or speech pathologists somehow integrating with the system, right? So they come in pretty eyes wide open knowing a really clear career path that they want and they hit the ground running. That's easy, right? That's easy for us to advise that we don't have to sell them on the um, value of the work or the professional career trajectories that you could have. I think we as faculty have to do a better job thinking of the long game of recruitment of students to our field and our work so that we don't only um, rely on this pipeline of people who come in knowing forevermore what they want because the risk of that is that we will continue to have a limited scope of professionals who who don't really represent the population served so I think what I would love to see is, um, and what we're working to do, is really center the voices and perspectives of um, folks whose voices and perspectives haven't been centered previously, right. so that more middle schoolers and high schoolers can see themselves in our career and in our profession, and we will have a more diverse pipeline of potential applicants and future professionals. Um, that's going to take some really intentional recruitment to the field, and that's going to take some really important, high-impact mm -hmm. um, experiences offered in the world, right? So, like, get a, a peek behind the curtain of what a teacher of the deaf or a speech pathologist does, or get some high school kids to volunteer at a summer camp for kids with communication disorders or learners with exceptionalities. 
um, so that when you feel the heartstring pull to the field or you know someone, then you see yourself in that in that pattern. I think these are that, that's an incredible strategy starting middle school, high school, and really giving them that exposure of what the field is all about. Uh, I right. totally applaud that. And recently, as we know from a, a national perspective, lots of discussions um, as it relates to Black Lives Matter and people of color. You know, what has been always been the case in my career with uh, ASHA as a speech language pathologist of you know, being overwhelmingly female and white. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that that has always been something that um, that has always bothered me from that perspective. And and knowing, you know, just latest statistics is about 9% uh, are people of color in ASHA, I think is the last right. thing I read, and then only 3% are African-American. And right. so it's, there's a lot of work to do. I mean, my Second year graduate students uh, haven't met the first years yet. They're they're on their way. They'll mm-hmm. be starting in the next few weeks. Um, the second years are all female. They're all white, and and it's hard sometimes to recruit. Yes, I, I mean absolutely. I we are experiencing the same thing because of so many ways that our system is built to serve some people and not others, right? Like um, it's bigger than just our, our tiny discipline. We can contextualize this in graduate school in general or access to equitable educational experiences. And when so much as so many things about like um, professional certification and advanced degrees are predicated on earlier opportunities, and those earlier opportunities are also inequitable across race and SES and language of the heart, then we're sort of inheriting that problem. I think that the, um, sitting on this end of things, we are challenged to say, okay, it is a, a much earlier investment we need to make. If I only looked at candidates who came out of bachelor's programs in related disciplines who had top scores in a really competitive field of speech-language pathology and uh, just a smaller pool in deaf ed, we would be, if we only picked top candidates on paper, we are not picking um, a robust, wide range of potential future professionals. So we're going to have to invest much earlier on. But that's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, right? Like if you're trying to put together your graduate class, do you need to be doing programming for middle schoolers and high schoolers? I don't know. Yeah. I think I think I'm learning that we do, and we need to be really explicit about our strategies because um, you're right. Asha has been um, tracking this inequity and um, data for a long time. They've had special interest groups and caucusing around this. Um, we're not quite as coordinated in the deaf ed world, much less like the listening and spoken language niche of that. So we have a lot to learn from um, our larger partnerships. I think we have to be all comfortable naming that we're generally a wealthy white female field and then how do we unpack that and what do we need to do to pull up more seats at the table and more room um, because we know we will be better when we have more diverse lived experience and more diverse perspectives in the decision making and leadership and um, professional learning community. Oh I agree wholeheartedly and and that recruitment is with students and then equally as hard finding faculty that have yes. grounds and yes 
uh, that's also a challenge, and we've we've struggled with that too. Yes, yes. Uh, you you may have had better luck. Maybe people are more willing to move to St. Louis rather than Akron, Ohio. Yeah, I I don't think, and I think even just the state of higher ed these days isn't exactly like the most appealing, right? You could stay in private practice and have a far more lucrative career or even work for some nonprofits and have a far more lucrative career or schools with pensions, school systems with pensions. But, um, you know, it's not only about the money and it's also about the the learning community. I think um, I think we also can conceptualize who are the leaders uh, in different ways, right? So it's not only um, the traditional, those academics in sort of the ivory tower. I think if we can broaden our definition of who's driving and leading the field, then we might also find more forays into the work. Um, and so lots of opportunity if we reject that like sort of scarcity mindset and uh, stay tracked onto who's doing the work, who's connecting the relationships. Oh, the other thought I had was um, there's always sort of a pull or a rub about do you need to be straight up the SLP path or straight up the deaf ed path to get into this work? And I think we have a clear opportunity to like cross over or I say even to our admissions folks like feel free to poach people who like name that their expressed interest is in special ed or early childhood ed or early childhood special ed because people who aren't aware of the work this work is our work is often not super visible it's happening in like broom closets or on tele-intervention or pulled out into the hallway and so um, often people could be drawn to a help-giving profession and know that they like something about education or something about therapy or something about, you know, family service delivery. But um, I think if we show them how they can be further unique and specialized, there there could be a good crossover draw. Oh, I, I think that's a, a great strategy as well. Uh, and we often in speech language pathology, we, you know, we'll get those students who maybe started out in education or... yes their student teaching and said, yes, I don't want to do a full class. This isn't it. Yep. Uh, I've just learned that, you know, in my senior year. And so now yes. at a, a different discipline and, and speech, speech language pathology or audiology is, is one that uh, usually comes up. Absolutely. And, you know, oh my goodness, if we could just have everyone in school for a decade, we could be all those things, right? I I see so much value to learning how to provide classroom management and differentiated instruction and how phenomenally helpful that is to someone who crosses over to do individual or small group therapy or service delivery or um, someone who comes up viewing, you know, early childhood special education and then can really support families in a really powerful way. So I think, um, I think we could, I wish we could be all the things, but we can't. So Let's piece it together. <laughs> exactly. We've, we've seen uh, some really strong students uh, who are non-traditional, you know, uh, individuals that have um, had other careers uh, and gone out and had some life experience, maybe had families, and now yes, for that second career. And, uh, yes. and some of those students I've worked with that fit that mold uh, have been absolutely wonderful. Because yeah. they are so passionate. This is they've done the research. This is what they want to do. Yeah. 
they're more settled. I mean, things don't, you know, ruffle them <laughs> too much. Absolutely. Life experience that sometimes our graduate students uh, that are, you know, 21, 22. Fresh out, right. Fresh out of undergrad just don't have the life experience and they get kind of flustered or whatever. Although we have, you know, great grad students. Phenomenal those two, yeah. Um, but it's it's uh, nice to see that range of, of background and experience, like you were saying yeah. here, because uh, it, it does help us in the long run have a better profession if we Absolutely. have diversity. Yeah. So let's, uh, as we talk about the PhD work and your doctoral work and, and related to that a bit, let's back up and talk about the leadership training. Uh, yeah. And that group, because is that um, still available? Or is- yeah, I don't. Um, so I'm sort of like a dotted line related now um, as an alum of that um, investment. It was an Office of Special Education Programs um, priority. So many of us who are running master's level programs have benefited from um OSEP, Office of Special Education Program, um, 325K grants, which are these personnel preparation grants, right? So for people who don't know, it's the federal government sees that there are shortages of um, qualified professionals to serve kids with sensory disabilities or high intensity learning needs. And so they say, here is a pool of money that you can compete for that will be piped through your university and support your university, but it's really passed through money to provide scholarships to students who will pursue degrees and disciplines that are of high need in our country. Right. So that is awesome and uh, has been a really powerful driver of allowing graduate students to obtain pretty expensive degrees in a really specialized area and then still be able to go back and make a modest <laughs> living wage and um, not accrue like unsurvivable debt. So that's a phenomenal program. Um, so OSEP also created a different competition 325KD that is for um, leadership development and that's just their way of naming sort of people who are going to be university faculty because to your point um, it's one thing to have a robust uh, representative workforce and then it's even fewer who like remain in long enough to sprinkle to the top and um, become in these positions of academia and we are seeing folks retire from lifelong careers in academia, and then there's a dearth of middle career professionals ready to replace them. So the federal government saw that that was a problem and like made this competitive leadership thing. So the NLCSD, um, National Leadership Consortium in Sensory Disability, was so cool for very many reasons. Um, One is it's a consortium of universities. So Mm -hmm. the degree that is earned by the NLCSD fellows is not necessarily all the same. Some it was in special ed, some the degree was like mine, speech and hearing science, um, a few other things. That didn't matter so much as that your outcome was that you could work in the field for which you were trained. But then they also had three tracks um, in sensory disabilities. So folks who are working to work in the field of deaf and hard of hearing, vision impairment, and then some who were doing deaf blindness, so um, Mm -hmm. dual sensory impairment. And that was really phenomenal because um, even being already pretty active in our deaf ed world and balancing 
my deep expertise, which was in listening and spoken language of deafness, I was meeting colleagues and faculty who were leading in um, bilingual bicultural programs or more um, comprehensive programs. So like we sort of had some bridge building to do even in the deafness folks, but then also there's so much in common about um, challenges to research, challenges to interventions in other sensory disabilities because of the low incidence nature of the, of the population. So that was really cool. Um, they ran two cohorts of NLCSD fellows. Um, so I was in the first crop of students, then they ran it again. And those people have graduated and are graduating now. I haven't heard that there will be another specific to sensory disabilities. Um, OSEP is continuing the 325D funding, but they shift the priorities. And so it sort of depends who goes up to compete for those. Right. Um, so it's a smallish network. And if people are interested in pursuing PhD, they should definitely look at the places that have this 325D funding. There's an awesome um, early childhood professional one now, uh, Mary Beth Bruder and some of her colleagues out of um, Connecticut are a part of that. I think Vanderbilt has some of this funding. So there are places where you could still access some of the federal dollars, but it might not be as explicitly related to sensory disabilities um, from the beginning. Right. So there's some opportunities still out there. So, yeah. Uh, and, and hopefully some of this will continue with new funding or new priorities that might come up in the next year or so. Right. And now all these NLCSD fa um, fellows who have grown into their faculty positions will um, maybe not in their first year at their university job, but can also think about collaborating and reapplying in the future as we continue to see the need if it still exists. Yeah, I've I've had some experience with training grants, so that's it's it was just great to see that that happened. And, yeah, and and just the caliber of of people that came out of it, yourself included. Well, um, thank you. <laughs> and uh, and sort of the next generation of leaders in the field of listening and spoken language. Yeah, we've um, made some deep and meaningful connections, and I know it has changed my um, outlook and perspective and was a really phenomenal opportunity. I think um, it's a bummer to me that, like, that there's just not the official next version readily available, but um, I'm part of a group um, actually with two other NLCSD fellows, um, Uma Soman and Elizabeth Rosenzweig, and we presented at A.G. Bell a few years ago, uh, Who Me, a PhD, which was a panel of people who were in progress or recently um, finished with their doc work. And what we have found sort of accidentally and now much more intentionally are that there's a real need to have a community of professionals who are who maybe have that like tiny seed in the way back of their mind of like, is this for me and should I do this? And they need to um, water and <laughs> seed and sow that along and harvest that um, because we need to help people listen to that and wonder about what that will look like for them. And is it a EDD or is it a PhD and is it at a research institution or is it a teaching institution and how will that look and feel? So now there's a pretty active Facebook group that people can join. Um, we did a, another panel discussion uh, my time is a little blurry these days with the COVID pandemic, but I think it was earlier this summer we had a virtual uh, webinar and meetup, and um, there's just a lot of 
good mentoring happening um, among and between those folks. So, I think that's a, a great idea because the, the, the few students I've had who've gone on to former grad students who've gone on to do a PhD, I think one of the challenges is that they may get accepted to a PhD program, but there isn't that real mentor. No. That's there on faculty. I mean, they, they have someone they're going to work with, but they need additional mentoring. Yes. That has, I have been in that role before where you know, I'm sort of the outside person on the committee, but I'm more of the content person. Yeah. Listening and spoken language and hearing loss. Uh, and they're, you know, again, the, the other people are very knowledgeable and, and great, but that, you know, the student, the PhD student just, you know, needed additional help. And so I think having a group like that, not only to get people sort of thinking about, you know, a doctoral, some type of doctoral work, and then uh, saying, okay, here are people within this group that could potentially be on your doctoral committee. So these are good people to get to know and, and network with. Absolutely. I think what we hear time and again through these like PhD panels, and I know from my own experience and like my friends' experiences, you need a variety of supports, right? You need Mm -hmm. friends and partners who are not in the work who can like be a complete and total distraction to you when you need that and um, need to have balance, but you need a lot more people who are um, living a similar or shared experience with you to like um, have deep empathy and then also challenge you and hold you accountable. And what you are saying about um, if people find themselves in a program, often they're in a program of one, right? We aren't necessarily psych PhDs where there's a cohort of 30 and they're all sitting around having like lab meetings every week. We might be the one person (laughs) uh, in a given program, or we might have an opportunity to join someone's lab, but we're sort of a lone outsider because our work is different and special. And, um, And so I think it will be on the PhD or doc candidate to really create that network for themselves. And there's a lot of us who will hand raise to be, be in their web and be in their network um, and share ideas. And that's the other thing is um, I think I naively at one time thought it was sort of like, Oh, I have two degrees in deaf education and now I'll do my third in the related discipline. I mean, I would advise, I do advise someone so differently now is like, when you get to the point where you want to do your doc work and you've been working in the field, you, you have the critical questions. You know where the gaps in research are and where we need um, more questions and more answers. And so it is a good idea, in fact, to be in a space where you aren't, aren't the expert. You can learn a methodology from some other discipline. You can, um, take a twist on someone's language research and apply it to a specific population of interest to you. So it doesn't have to only look like the same discipline for which you've already been trained. And that's sort of a shift. But when you do that, then you, um, you are stepping out of sort of your comfort zone and network. So. That's well, I, I admire you being having that deaf ed background and then doing speech and hearing science. Cause that was, even though related, that's still. A big, yeah. It's a big, yeah. My my doctorate is uh, speech and hearing science as well. So, <laughs> and, and, and that I, can look a lot of different ways. I've learned, you know, um, I, I, it was a good developmental phase for me. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I wouldn't trade it, you know, myself. I wouldn't trade going back um, and and doing anything differently. Yeah. Um, 
So your research, let's talk a little bit about that and some of your uh, passions in terms of where you want to focus your energies and, and what questions do you have that you're pursuing in deaf education and service delivery to families that have children with hearing loss? Yeah. So um, I, I am a practitioner and, um, and coach at heart, right? Like even when I entered doc work at a, at a pretty traditional R1 kind of institution, um, I, all of my questions still sort of fit in the translational uh, gap of, well, this is what I'm seeing in practice when I am sitting on someone's living room floor, when I am driving to their house, when I am working with a student teacher who's coming along with me to learn this art and craft. And so um, when I think about all of my questions, they are all coming up from sort of a really practical place. Now, I am at a primarily teaching institution where um, research is not necessarily the priority, but certainly scholarship and creative activity. So that has been a nice fit for me because I can still have these big questions. I don't have um, extreme pressures of publish or perish, but I'm also finding that my niche or my contribution is sort of um, in the critical thinking and the application piece of how do we look at um, what is happening in real life and where is the evidence supporting that or where do we need to push back mm -hmm. or how can we um, take like sort of lessons learned from individual um, smaller data sets and apply them across systems. So I like to, to stay in the space of both the individual change that has to happen and then the systems change. I'm also finding, um, so I'll say my interests, if like I looked at them on paper, all relate to um, professional preparation and practice. I really want to think about how do we um, prepare folks to do this work with the current knowledge and skills? How do we measure those knowledge and skills? How do we sort of scale up impact? Um, but then I also want to be thinking about when we're preparing them with those knowledge and skills, are we preparing them for the kinds of learners and families and um, the world that is today? And so a lot of my uh, work has focused on supporting and promoting family resilience and looking at adverse childhood experiences and the impact that that has on children and families and their outcomes. And it relates, right? Because as professionals, if our efficacy is judged on what we do, which impacts what parents do, which impacts what children do, then we would be foolish to ignore the systems in which children and families were living and residing and working. Because no matter how phenomenal we are at whatever bag of tricks or skills, <laughs> um, if it is not a match for a family's truth, <laughs> then uh, the outcomes will be impacted negatively. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and one of the things that I try to instill in my grad students that I, I still do two full days of clinic each week. Good for you. <laughs> at Akron Children's Hospital. So um, working with families and have my grad students there with me. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's easy sometimes to fall into that rut of, you know, of being judgmental it was like, you know, mm -hmm. they're not coming in, you know, they're, you know, didn't follow through, you know, and it's, it's, you know, you say the same thing, you know, maybe for the fifth time about what, mm -hmm. and what I try to do with my grad students is say, okay, 
yes, these are issues that we we see. Let's try to put ourselves in the place of this family, you know, and, and change places and what's going on in the home mm-hmm. where, you know, food may be the priority that week. Right. Uh, or, you know, other challenges or just having a home may be the priority that week or right. to stay. And so, you know, while we want them to follow through and do the things that we want them to do in terms of children with, you know, their child with hearing loss, we have to sometimes take a step back and look at a bigger picture and put ourselves uh, in their shoes for a moment right. and decide, okay, you know, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, having diversity of experience, you know, mm-hmm. with most of us having that sort of middle class background, you know, we just don't understand why can't they just do what we ask them to do and be on time and show up every week and do all these things. But maybe we've never had to deal with not having a home. Right. Or not having right. food in the house. Right. Or those kinds of things. And I think it's, you know, really important that we we do that. We think about what is behind this behavior. Right. Um, and how can we work with others to, you know, help this family deal with those issues so that they can be more successful in the intervention that we want them to, to do. Right. I, I think so much of what you're talking about um, relates right back to that, the individual work that has to happen and then how we change our systems of service delivery to honor the unique and individualization that is really important and necessary to move the needle on child and family outcomes. And so um that's tricky, right? Because it would be a lot easier if we could say like, this is the intervention everyone is getting because it's been proven in a lab to have an impact on listening, spoken language outcomes. But the second we provide that sort of um, packaged intervention, we're really missing the opportunity to do what Zaretta Hammond and others would call culturally responsive interaction. And, and the high yield efficacy dissipates anyway, right? So so when we remain like falsely loyal to an evidence-based intervention that is not a match for the population that is before us, um, it's, it's not going to work anyway. So what I'm really um, finding that we need to double down on is when we engage in deep and meaningful relationships with people who are like and not like us, then we can begin to experience the empathy and the witnessing of someone else's truth (laughs) that differs from ours, right? So um, you're right. We might not have personally experienced um, being unhoused or having food insecurity or um, having... um, a family history, a personal lived history of so much trauma that is not yet um, resolved, right? And so how do we meet people where they are and then continue to believe that they are capable and competent of being the best for their own children and then build their capacity from where it is, not where we wish it would be? So Um, I cannot say enough about, I'm following the work of um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who is a developmental pediatrician who really saw these similar um, factors at play in her pediatric practice and then has just been a phenomenal systems change agent. Now she's the Surgeon General of California and is looking at how do we measure 
early adversity and then track it and help pipe families into the right system of supports that they need. So a little teacher of the deaf or a little speech pathologist um, can do the internal work that we need ourselves to recognize our biases based on our own lived experience. And that's helpful and necessary, like necessary but insufficient. And then we need to be working in a close network with other professionals who have complementary skills towards us. Because I don't know that I'm going to be the right person to help the family meet all of their needs, but you better believe if I care that they're going to, you know, have listening and spoken language outcomes, I need to also make sure that they have um, other supports and services in their, on their team. So I need to know the social worker to call and I need to know the pediatrician to call and I need to know the community health worker who will help follow up. And um, so that's on me to make sure that my system of supports is connected and thoughtful. Right. And it sort of comes back full circle to what you're doing uh, in the dean's office in terms of interprofessional work that's going on there. And absolutely making sure that we have those contacts as professionals that we can share, you know, concerns with other professionals, get them involved and and know who to call, know when to call and, and to reach out. And I, I think, you know, too often we kind of continue to practice in these silos, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, taking the time to reach out and, and, and really doing more of a systematic focus on the, on the family. Uh, and then, of course, the family gets caught in the middle and maybe getting, you know, conflicting information from professionals right. and, and not knowing what to do and ends up, you know, just not having any type of impact. So right. I applaud what you're doing and, and something that is, is really, really needed, both for your students that you're working with, as well as with your, your faculty colleagues you're also targeting. Right. I think that um, that interprofessional is, there's not like a silver bullet or magic wand for all of this. But for me, like the interprofessional practice is like pretty much as close as it gets so far. Because if we prepare professionals in the pre-service phase, knowing how it takes skills to work with other professionals and know about overlapping scope of practice. I was chatting with a colleague just last week about um, some infighting that's happening between like, well, is that in the audiologist scope of practice or the teacher of the deaf or the auditory verbal practitioner? And like, yes, it's in all of them. (laughs) And there's okay to have like sort of an overlapping Venn diagram shaded spot in the middle. Um, But we need to prepare folks um, in an interprofessional way so that when they enter the workforce and are faced with real challenges, they are ready and practice and aren't learning the interprofessional skills while they're also um, new to the work. Right. But also, I tell my students like not to be fooled that they're going to come out of our Fontbonne University program that's had this immense interprofessional practice focus and this intense family-centered capacity building focus. And they're going to go into systems where those things aren't valued, where you don't get to bill if you're co-treating or you don't get to um, let the parent decide what their goal is for this week. You dictate that. So they're I don't want them to be, I don't want our new um, career professionals to be defeated when they enter these systems that aren't doing what we know they should be doing. But also I think um, that's where you think about what's your sphere of influence and where can you as a new bright-eyed professional 
make a change, even a tiny one. So, right, is it that you're going to establish a regular phone call with a service provider at the hospital down the road? And, you know, um, how do you actually make those relationships on in your sphere, sphere of influence when you're working in a system that needs like a whole facelift? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, a facelift is 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 a a charitable description. <laughs> a breakdown, a burn it down to the ground. That's sometimes what I want to say is like burn it all down. We got to start over. But yeah, it's yeah, it, it's it can be very frustrating as we all know. Um, but you know, I think it it takes people like you. It takes people. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> And faculty members who are going to produce a different graduate with different mm-hmm. a different focus than maybe before, you know, mm-hmm. a different uh, mindset than before, mm-hmm. and and those will be the the people that will go out and and help make and create this systems change that we need mm-hmm. to see happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's frustrating from time to time, um, but got to keep. Uh, sort of pounding on the door, yeah. It's open, and and we start to see the change that's needed. Absolutely. So, let's see. Wow, we've covered a lot in the. Yes, we have. Um, so, Jenna, what would you recommend to those individuals who may be thinking about listening and spoken language as a career shift or maybe they're starting out now with you know getting those clock hours and finding mm-hmm. a board and all those things what advice would you give them um first i would say like welcome and there's room for all um i have recently um taken the position of the chair of the ag bell academy and so the ag bell academy is the certification arm of ag bell association and we have, as you know, and many of us know, um, a high-level listening and spoken language specialist certification with two designations, auditory verbal educator and auditory verbal therapist. Um, both are LSLS practitioners, and this is a deep and important and meaningful um, certification to sort of develop and then designate yourself as having developed the skills to support family capacity for kids who are learning listening and spoken language. That is a beautiful path and we are working on um, having more um, entry ramps into that path and doing that with a global lens in mind. So we know that the certification process has been um, awesome for some people and there isn't a place in it for other people and we're working very hard to identify what are the high barriers and how can we eliminate or open those gates a little bit. So um, one example is that the AG Bell Academy is working on and soon will be beta testing the adaptation of our assessment, our test that happens at the um, currently sort of towards the end of this process, this three to five year process. And now that test will be adapted into Spanish. And so that will hopefully um, be one less barrier for the learners or the professionals who um, have Spanish language of their heart and Mm -hmm. the English language test was a problem. We don't have that test adapted into all the global languages. And that's a very spendy process and challenging 
for many reasons, but that is but one barrier. So now we're also going to be looking at other barriers. We know um, the degree requirements, the foundational degree requirements may be a barrier for some folks. If you come from a part of the world where there are not degrees in audiology or speech language pathology or deaf education. Um, and so we're really looking at what can we as the academy do to make the path more inviting. I will also say, as much as I have gotten my own certification and am doing work to help others get their certification, getting the certification might not be for everyone. And in fact, the knowledge of what, what do um, the strategies look like to support caregiver capacity or what do the strategies look like to um, use an auditory model first or what do the strategies look like to embed cognitive and linguistic targets in one lesson. Those we want to shout from the rooftops and have everyone know, right? We um, don't need to fool ourselves to think that every language pathologist or teacher of the deaf or audiologist of the world will want the LSLS certification, but we do want everyone to have a little bit more understanding and learning and um, capacity to use spoken language and support spoken language for the families that choose it for their children. So I think you will also see coming from the academy um, in the coming years, like obviously we've had plenty of CEU opportunities. There are so many professionals doing the good work that apply for um, ASHA CEUs for their professional development and AG Bell CEUs. I think we will be focusing more on how do we make those trainings and professional development opportunities that have been relatively U.S. or U.S. Australia centric more culturally relevant for other folks around the world. Um, so that means we need the workforce to be doing that, like the Academy is a group of volunteers, but we're, we're trying to sort of um, incentivize and support. Um, so you speak Hindi and Gujarati and six other languages um, in India, like then great, let's point folks who need that access to you um, and trust that you're working within the AGBAL framework of um, professional learning. So it's a great mission for the academy. I mean, just an incredible mission, so to speak, of, of getting the certification, the testing out there. And yes people who need access to it have access to it yes but i also i do agree with you that you know maybe certification isn't right for everyone but they can be very good auditory teachers yes clinicians and and yes. do an excellent job yeah i i don't know that i'm speaking for the academy when i say this but i think um as i've watched as i have interacted in my professional practice with um, colleagues who are not in listening and spoken language. There, there's a lot of baggage there about how professionals in our field have gotten along historically or not. And um, my sense is, Jenna's sense, not official of anyone, is that there's some elitism happening and that it is only for a chosen few to be experts in this. And that is the opposite, in fact, of any of my mentors who have, you know, pass their knowledge on to me like that is elitism is the the opposite of the thing right this is about supporting families and caregivers and getting the information out there and so I think we need to 
notice that that's the reputation that some of us as individuals hold or some of us as um, a field hold and then think about how do we counteract that and how do we say this can be for you too or hi please keep my number handy so that when you have a family that have needs that you don't feel you can meet alone you can call me and not be afraid that I'm gonna like poach them from you but that we can work together and in tandem so I feel like um I feel like that's an important thing for us to keep not so far in the back of our mind that um, there might be some bad feelings about this in some of our very own colleagues. And and if we can repair some of those relationships, I think um, the children and families will be better served. I I agree wholeheartedly. wholeheartedly. And I think um, in, in my career, when I first started into auditory verbal and, um, I experienced some of that elitism in terms of how, you know, people interacted with me and who are you and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I think it's a, it's a one, it's a point very well taken that and for some of us, we may have to do some uh, relationship repair uh, mm-hmm. just around the whole idea of becoming certified in mm-hmm. listening and spoken language. So, mm-hmm. well, Jenna, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. Same. And I'm I'm quite sure we could go on and on and on and on also. <laughs> Who wants to listen to our coffee chat? <laughs> definitely solve most of the world's problems. Keep talking. Uh, but it, I don't want to impose on your time, but thank you so much for being with us and uh, being on the podcast. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck in everything that you're continuing to do. Thank you. And thank you for having the podcast and connecting professionals in this um, innovative virtual way. I will just say, like, feel free to share my contact with anyone. Um, I would love to be in conversation and hear um, hear people's thoughts and perspectives and be connected. So thanks. Sounds great. Well, do, do you want to share your contact information? Sure. Um, yeah, like my best way is probably email, and that's just J, like Jenna, and then Voss, my last name, V, like Victor, O-S-S, J Voss at fontbon.edu, and I'll spell fontbon, <laughs> F, like Frank, O-N-T, B, like boy, O-N-N-E, dot E-D-U, fontbon.edu. That's the best way to contact me. Well, now you're going to get all kinds of emails from the thousands of people. that I'm sure you're thousands of global listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I truly enjoyed that conversation with Jenna, and I hope you learned as much as I did just in having that conversation. I'm so impressed with what she's doing and her perspective on working with families and her perspectives on trying to get the LISL training and certification to other populations in other countries. I just wish her all the best in the world. And so thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you don't mind, please uh, leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract subscribers and to grow the program. And that's exactly what we want to do. And if you are a content creator and want to develop a new webinar, a course, or even a new podcast, please reach out to me through the 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and maybe we can work together on one of those things. And until next time, 
Thank you, as always, for listening. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.